Welcome to the Starfish Storytellers, the podcast that makes a difference one story at a time by bringing storytelling to life. I live in Bedford, a small town in eastern Massachusetts, a small town, but it has plenty of good stories, stories about Minutemen who go through the wars carrying their red flag, stories about a witch who wore a red cloak, stories about a train, a little train that went up and down a narrow track, and stories about cord waners and dairy farmers, and scientists looking into their computers for radar. But this story isn't about people. It's about a pair of boulders, rocks, called the Two Brothers. And it begins thousands of years before there was a Bedford. It begins in the Ice Age, when all was ice. And even Bedford, the proto-Bedford, before Bedford, was here, was under perhaps a mile of ice, and no living things could survive here. No humans, no animals, no plants. It was just ice, and the living things were stopped by the barrier of ice and lived to the south of here. But now jump forward to 15,000 years ago. The endless smothering ice was melting, and the meltwater was making rivers and streams and brooks. It was pooling into lakes and ponds. The river that flowed past had several names. It was called the Grassy River. It was called the Musketaquid, and now we call it the Concord River. And it's hard for me to tell you about long ago, and the Concord River. That's just a conflict of time, but you're just gonna have to put up with me because I don't know another way to do it. So the glacier is receding and losing its grip on the rocks and stones and pebbles that it's been carrying. As it melted back this proto-Bedford, it dropped rocks everywhere. But the particular rocks that I want to tell you about are two big boulders on the side of the river called the Two Brothers Rocks. Now, why are they called the Two Brothers Rocks? That's what I'm going to tell you. But it starts with the first people. The first people arrived in this area, oh, around 11,000 years ago. They didn't make a village when they first arrived. They were traveling people, and they traveled through the forests to hunt. They waited beside the rivers for the alewives to spawn. They waited in the marshes to catch the migrating birds. And they went to the seaside to dig up mussels and clams. They knew the area well, but they traveled. But there were favorite places that they would return to again and again. And this area may have been a favorite place. Anyway, there was a hunter here 10,000 years ago, and the evidence is that he dropped the stone point of his spear. 
He may have been hunting muskrats or beaver, and he lost the point. Went on, didn't find it, and incredibly, in modern times, a man out walking his dog found the point and gave it to the Bedford Historical Society where it is treasured. Over the years, the paths the indigenous people walked became uh, trails. And the trails, three of the trails, led to these boulders, these two twin boulders on the riverside. Which is interesting, why would paths lead to rocks? It's thought that the rocks marked a shallow place, a ford in the river, where people could wade across the river. One of the trails came from the north, one of the trails came from the south, and the third one started across the river and went west. What did the indigenous people call their landmark? Too much time has passed and it's not remembered. But there is a name by which they're known now, which I mentioned, the Two Brothers Rocks. So I'm speaking of the time when the English colonists were coming to Massachusetts Bay to settle. It was 1630. Ten years after the Pilgrims had made a village at Plymouth, which was called Pawtuxet, when the indigenous people lived there, 11 ships sailed into Salem Harbor, carrying some 700 or more English colonists. And that wasn't the least or the most of the immigrants who came. The governor of the company was elected to be John Winthrop, and the deputy governor was Thomas Dudley. They worked together for years and years and years. Sometimes Winthrop was elected the governor, sometimes Dudley was elected the governor. Their children actually fell in love and married, but the men were not friends, they were rivals. Now the great and general court, which was the legislature, wanted the people to settle in inland. And most of the towns were on the seacoast. So they decided to give out land grants to important people. John Winthrop's rule of thumb was that if the land was improved, if it had houses on it, if it had cornfields, somehow improved, then you had to compensate the indigenous people for taking the land. And that's how Concord was done. Uh, the English colonists wanted this part of this village called Musketaquid, and they exchanged for six miles square some iron tools, some uh, wampum, and a complete set of English clothing. Now, down by the, uh, the twin rocks, the twin boulders, the land was not seen to be improved. There were no villages, there were no planted fields. Uh, actually, there were trails, and there were hunters, and there were fishers. But to the English eye, it appeared unimproved. So they felt fine about taking it. And in 1638, Concord saw 
Winthrop and Dudley borrowing a boat and paddling down the river to this impressive landmark that everybody pretty much knew about. They got out of the boat and stood by the rocks and decided from here north is going to be Dudley's land and from here south is going to be Winthrop's land, 1,200 acres apiece. And because they had agreed so peaceably, and because their children were married and they were in a way related, they called the rocks the Brothers Rocks. And you can see them now. You can paddle down in your boat and pull up and climb out, or you can walk down a trail like the indigenous people did. Maybe it's their trail. And when you go, remember the history that these stones witnessed and then enjoy an hour in a beautiful place. Marcom and project management firm headquartered on the east coast of the U.S. in quaint colonial Bedford, Massachusetts. I'm your host and passionate about storytelling. I'm actually on a mission to raise up the next generation of storytellers. We've named ourselves the Starfish Storytellers after the Starfish Story. The moral of the Starfish Story is based on the power of one. No matter how big the challenge, each action we take makes a difference and has an impact. One step, one starfish, or one story at a time. Every episode, we welcome a new storyteller who will share their story meant to inspire and connect with you. Then we'll break it down and offer tips for any listeners who are ready to tell their own stories. So thanks for tuning in. Now let's get started. Today's episode is about historical narratives, framing everyday life from a historical point of view. And with me today is Sharon McDonald. She's the historian for Bedford. She has been appointed by the town of Bedford and is on the board of directors of the Bedford Historical Society, which is a nonprofit organization that's been collecting and sharing the stories of Bedford and its residents since 1893. We really appreciate you giving us your time today. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, you're welcome. How kind of you to invite me. I'm just really glad you're here. Um, so we usually get started by hearing from our guests, just an introduction. Would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us a little bit about you? I'm a resident of Bedford this year, 50 years, wow. and I feel that it's my home, even though my first 25 years were scattered all over the place. Um, I've come to love this town so much. Uh, all the people are my dear, dear friends, and the land is something that I love to walk over. I hang out in the graveyard, the old burying ground, and uh, down by the Brothers Rocks, and at the library. I, Bedford is my favorite place. Nice. Um, I really appreciate you sharing this historical story with us. Um, you know, history, historical narratives really give us, those of us who are here now, a way to organize a course of time and to frame our everyday life from what happened before. Um, and it also gives us 
a reason, you know, we this way we understand where our roots are, who our ancestors were, what our predecessors went through to give us the life that we have today. And, you know, I, I've been a journalist and, um, and I a publisher and I have retold histor- historical stories, um, not for Bedford yet, but with another town. And I, you know, had publications that I, that I, which I covered for I, whom I covered. And um, I really am a firm believer it's important for us to pass it on to the next generation so that they have, they have the history too. Um, and historical narratives will always give people a reason to take action, um, making sense of our past and our past realities. So um, you were appointed as the town historian. I was. You were. Okay. Yes. And uh, so I was, what, the selectman had a meeting yes. and said, uh, the candidates for town historian, please come to the front and, and tell us why you want to be town historian. I had a dear, dear friend. I have a dear friend who also wanted to be town historian. Mm-hmm. And when she realized I wanted to be the town historian, she withdrew. That's such a good friend, Mm. such a good friend. So I've been town historian for about 10 years now. For 10 years. So what does a town historian do? Like, what are you tasked to do by the town? I answer questions that come up, but there are lots more things than answering questions. Um, I do a little genealogy when people say, gee, I think my father's, father's father's uncle uh, lived on Hillside, can you tell me which house it was? Or my uh, cousin was killed uh, on the railroad, can you tell me about the railroad? I also try to be proactive. I write. I've written three books now about Bedford. And I do a lot of speaking uh, uh, programs. Oh, I was just recently a program about Juneteenth. I was the speaker when Bedford has its poll capping the last 17 years, I've been the speaker, um, and I read. I just read and write and, and study, and uh, it's fun. Now, you said in your introduction you've been here over 50 years. Um, you know, how have you seen the town evolve in the time that you've been here, um, you know, from new buildings, new businesses, um, the coming and goings of, you know, really prominent, important people. You know, what are some of the, what are some of the memories that you have from your, from your time here um, that really stand out for you and maybe even from a historical standpoint? Well, let me see. Um, people do say Bedford has changed a lot. The, the buildings are getting larger and the, and the streets are getting busier with traffic. Um, I, I don't see a lot of difference because my Bedford is the people. People are so kind and people are so helpful. I just got a new TV and uh, the neighbor across the street was mowing his lawn, and I said, ooh, could you help me carry this TV down to the street to, to get rid of the old one? Oh, sure, and he came over and carried it right down. It was raining. No problem, no mm. problem. Bedford Town, I think, though people are, are afraid that the people are going to change, has, has been warm and, and uh, supportive. When we met each other and uh we were talking about 
what sort of things we might talk about on the podcast today, you brought up that the 1800s and the 1900s were very important moments in time that shaped Bedford. Um, are those what it makes those eras so important, and what are maybe some specific stories that might kind of stand out for you from those time frames? Uh, when people think about Bedford history, I've found generally they're thinking about the Bedford flag, mm-hmm. which is one of the oldest flags in the United States and Canada and Mexico. I mean, it's an old flag. I see it in your office. There it is in my um, And yeah. I've written a book about the Bedford flag. And still I feel that Bedford history is more than the Bedford flag, and it's more than the American Revolution. Bedford has been uh, a real town, a growing town, and I want to uh, I wanted to emphasize that that Bedford is more than the Bedford flag. Mm-hmm. So I've been very interested in the 1800s mm-hmm. and have done. Uh, three programs now for the Historical Society on historical characters Um, and people who are not just your New England founders. I have read about an enslaved man who was bought when he was five years old and the Bedford Historical Society has that deed for Jeffrey, age five, for, I don't know, 20 pounds to be conveyed to Hartwell. I think that's an important story. I think stories about people whose ancestors were not New Englanders are important as well. And at the turn of the century, there were many, um, many Italian people who were coming, there are many Irish people who were coming, and they were, uh, to a large extent, Roman Catholic. So this nice, um, comfortable, congregational and Unitarian town panicked a little at these these, uh, strange people. And I think it's important to find stories that make that history continuous and not just bounce it into something else. The early 1900s, there were more pigs than people in Bedford in 1935. It was a very small town. It was a dairy, a dairy town and a pig town. There were lots of pigs. People who grew up here have told me it smelled like pigs years ago. Um, it's, it's, it's so fascinating to learn about all of Bedford history, and not, well, not all of it, but I say, John, you know? Mm-hmm. Nice. Wow. And you said that at, down in the Bedford Historical Society, you're sort of the keeper of the artifacts. Um, you're also keeper of the records. Um, what, what artifacts are down there? What, you know, what, what do you have? Oh, well, the, the Historical Society is the keeper of the artifacts and the documents. Um, we have letters from long ago. We have a, a letter 
Well, we have the deed for Jeffrey when he was mm. sold. We have deeds from the Bacon family, and we have letters from the Bacon family that's uh, about 1890, saying I was riding in my wagon, and the horse bolted, and the wagon fell over, and all my eggs broke. Oh. It's a wonderful letter, and there are lots of letters like that. There are... Uh, files and files that go by street address so you learn who lived at one Fletcher Road and and what did they build and when did they live there all through the town so not every house but most of the older houses so people can come and see what the history of their house is oh we have I was there this morning let me see artifacts we have some of the milk bottles and some of the milk, you know those uh, boxes, yep. those metal boxes that they used to put the milk in? And um, from Bedford was a dairy town, so the Blue Ribbon Dairy, the J.B. Prescott Dairy, all the dairies in town are important, and we have lots of, lots of stuff from the dairies. We have a cobbler's bench from the time in the 1800s when Bedford was a shoemaking town, a cord-waning town. And there were, oh, a hundred people who were working as shoemakers. And uh, it's written that one year, Bedford produced 90,000 shoes. Wow. 90,000 shoes. Do you, do you have an idea what year that was? Oh, I do, but I can't tell you right now. <laughs> Probably eighteen thirty ish. And how long? And how long was Bedford a shoemaking town? It started about eighteen five, and was fading at the time of the Civil War. The Civil War was a real hard time for Bedford. Uh, so many of the men went off to war, and the women were left to work the fields and, and milk the cows and all that kind of stuff, uh, the paper mill burned. So a lot of people, 40, 50 people, lost their jobs. In the country, it was there was a depression. Mm-hmm. And they had invented somebody, some rascal, had invented a sewing machine that could sew the soles onto shoes. And all these people who were cutting the leather and then sewing it together in Bedford were suddenly out of a job because the oh. machine could do it. Yep. So it dwindled down till again, there were four or five shoemakers in town mm-hmm. and not a hundred. Wow. Well, you think about tailors and, and, you know, people who, you know, fix shoes. I mean, that's just, the cobblers are very hard to find. Mm-hmm. So... So that's, mm-hmm. that's a very specialty oh, yes. skill. Yes, and these were cord waners. Cord waners make new shoes. Cobblers fix old shoes. So when I say Bedford was a cord waning town, people go, huh? Yeah, what is that? <laughs> so I get to define it. It's pretty, it's pretty fun. Yeah, and I would think other artifacts that you had were things, probably a lot of clothing. We have a lot of clothing, yes. We have... I want to say 35 boxes of clothing. Mm-hmm. Um, some beautiful dresses with the tiny, tiny waists that somehow they wore. 
100, 150 years ago. We have babies christening dresses. We have uh, Navy and uh, Army uniforms from the First World War. Lots of, lots of cool clothing. We have the Witch of the Shawsheen, who was supposedly a witch and came to town with her red cape. We have that red cape. Wow. Yeah, and that's 1762. Wow. Mm. Mm. It's so exciting to work down there. Mm-hmm. And you must, I mean, everything is, is everything like specially preserved in like special boxes or how do you, how do you keep all of these things from not falling apart? Or Indeed, yeah. We have special acid-free boxes that oh, we put okay. the documents in. And uh, a lot of the smaller artifacts we wrap in acid-free paper, not bubble wrap. <laughs> Sometimes we say, gee, we wish we could do this in bubble wrap because it's so fragile. But paper, yep. paper. Um, we were very careful to preserve this stuff as long as we can. We have a cradle uh, that comes from before 1600. And we want to last, want it to last another 400 years. Mm-hmm. So we, we cheat it so lovingly and so carefully. Well, I mean, it's just these artifacts. I mean, I, I can't even imagine how you even handle them at all, like wearing gloves or being very, very careful. Mm-hmm. Sometimes wear. we wear gloves. And sometimes you know how awkward gloves are? Yeah. And sometimes it's safer to wash your hands and get the soap off and then handle things with your bare hands just mm-hmm. so you're not in, fra- in, in danger of tearing the documents or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that makes sense. That makes sense. I, I had, um, I've been in the historical room at a library, and I've had artifacts handed to me, and I've worn gloves, and I've, like, I haven't even wanted to touch them because mm-hmm. it's just so, they're very precious, and they're yes. very delicate, and... Um, but it's it's amazing how things are cataloged and organized and preserved and stored. You have to store it a certain way. Oh yes, because the temperature changes can be impacting them. Mm-hmm. And uh, film on the window so that the UV light doesn't come in. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's it's quite a quite a uh, labor of love. Mm-hmm. I think. I'm just a volunteer there and and do it as a labor of love. Yeah, yeah. for sure. So. When talking about a historical story, uh, you know, I, I've told historical stories and research is key and getting it right is key and citing your sources and having lots of sources is important. Um, do you have any advice for a history buff who might like to dive into some historical storytelling? What should they do to perhaps get themselves started? Well, so often these days you think, well, I'll just bop into the Internet and, you know, into Google and then I'll learn about it and then I can make a story. And um, you don't do that. <laughs> you, there, are, there are history books written in Bedford. 1891, A.E. Brown wrote a history of Bedford up to 1891. And right now it's being edited and annotated um, and made more accessible to us. Uh, A.E. Brown will say, well, the Fletcher house on the corner uh, had had a new cow. And this editor will say, 
the Fletcher House on the corner of Fletcher and the Great Road, which is number 14 now and was started. You know, she's really editing the whole book, and it should be out in the fall. So that's going to be even greater when you can read uh, Mr. Brown's book. There are other books that are written about Bedford that you can that you can plow through. I've written a, a history of Bedford for children. And then you have to find the documents, if you can. You go back and see, mostly in the Historical Society, the Bedford Library has a Bedford collection room, too, when they have documents. And trying to find letters, trying to find... Um, well, when I was studying Jeffrey, the, the young boy who was enslaved, I found out that later he was a Revolutionary War soldier, that he wasn't paid, that his, his, his money was given to his master, which made him very annoyed. And you can look and see where was he paid, how much was he paid, and what was, what was he doing that he got paid for, and did he die in Bedford? You go through the old Bedford records and see uh, if he's there. In Bedford, there's an old African burying ground, an African reservation, where all of the black people were buried. You weren't allowed to be buried anywhere else but in that African re reservation. So you can, uh, you can really run into a blank wall when you're trying to research that because there are no records. Mm -hmm. There are no records. So I went through uh, the vital records of the town all the way through the births, the marriages, the deaths, and it will say, um, Casco married Caesar. Um, and you just kind of have to figure out what they are. There's a lot of... There's a lot of researching and getting a question, then then more research to answer that question. Knowing how to research is also knowing how to ask other people, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then verifying it back and forth, back and forth. Yeah, yeah. It is a very lengthy, detailed process to do research and to get it right. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. You know, I love it. Oh, it's so yeah. much fun. I was a librarian for 40 years, so mm -hmm. it's just the ideal thing for a retired librarian. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, I want to thank you so much, Sharon. I, I've learned so much about Bedford in just this short time that I, we've been sitting here with you and um, just really loved the stories about my story about the, the twin brothers, the, mm -hmm. the two rocks, and... Um, and then just learning about all the different things that were going on in town, you know, the shoemakers and the mills. And thank you so much for being here and thank you for sharing that. Oh, you're welcome. I enjoyed it. Thank you. And to our listeners, whether you hear us locally from the BTV studios in Bedford, Massachusetts, or across the globe on such podcast channels as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Amazon Prime, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and we'll see you next time. Happy storytelling! Happy storytelling.